Palm Sunday. Thank you for celebrating with us by waving your palms. I just think um, it's, it's fun for the kids to do that, but it's also good for us to remember that we have a risen king that's worthy to be worshipped. And we, we attempt to do that to the best of our ability every time we come into the presence of the Lord. God, may you receive the best of our expression of thanksgiving, our expression of worship, um, and adoration for who you are and what you've done. And so we, we come this morning with that same kind of experience. Uh, a little, little side story as we jump into this morning kind of relates to Palm Sunday. I, 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 for all of you golf fans out there or non-golf fans, it's the Masters uh, this weekend. It's a big golf tournament. And uh, I have to admit that I like to watch golf, and my kids think it's funny because they think it's nap. It's a nap show. You know, you, <laughs> golf comes on and everybody takes naps. You know, it's just like birds, you know, it's like, what are you watching, Dad? You just take a nap because, you know, naps are good, you know, when you watch golf. But it's funny when you watch, especially in our day in sports, and, I, and I'm making fun of myself because I, I love sports, but I'm listening to the broadcaster sum up yesterday's events, you know, they have this wonderful video montage of all these wonderful golf shots and the guys talking quietly in the background, and he's really uh, expressing how unbelievably historic this Masters is. You know, it happens every year, but it's historic this year, you know, again, you know, and he's talking about all the great things that happened yesterday, and this is his quote. I, I heard it, and I was like, I got it. It's just great. He says, and this is the day. He's talking about the third day of a four-day tournament. You know, like, it's not even the last day. He said, and this is the day we had all been waiting for. <laughs> yeah. But tomorrow might just be the day that changes someone's life. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, probably true, but come on, dude. It's a golf tournament. I mean, I love golf. This is the day we've been waiting for. Tomorrow might be. I thought, well, you know what? I know a day that changed someone's life. But it wasn't the last day of the Masters. It was the day of the Master. It was this week that we're entering into, you know, this Palm Sunday that proceeds towards a day when the Son of God willingly gave His life up for us. And it was the day that we had been waiting for whether we knew it or not in the day that would change the world's life. And uh, so I, I thought it was interesting. Weekend of the Masters, there's a little bit of foreshadowing, but there's a greater day that we're talking about today. We've been in the middle of a series called Love to Love. The scripture tells us that we are able to love, we are able to 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 demonstrate, experience and demonstrate the love that comes from God, a, a love that's unconditional, that is, that is uh, others-focused, that is um, revolutionary in the way that it transforms our lives. This kind of love, that we are able to have that kind of love in us and lived through us towards other people because we have first received the love of God. And so we've been in a series where we're looking at how Christ Jesus has loved us and therefore how he's modeled for us and empowered us to love others in the same way. And last week we looked at how Christ Jesus on the day of the Last Supper, the supper that he had with his, his disciples before he went to trial and then ultimately was crucified, we looked at that passage of Scripture that describes how Jesus um, uh, 
served his disciples by bending down and washing their feet. And how Jesus and God are, they serve us. That they hold their power in a way that's unusual for those who have ultimate power. Their power is demonstrated through service, uh, through humility. Um, something that we see very, not that often in our world and is not esteemed that often in place of authority. This week, we're going to continue that, that story um, beyond that Last Supper as Jesus spends some time talking and praying with his disciples and then enters into the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and we're going to look at Jesus being our obedient intercessor, our obedient sacrificial intercessor. Intercessor, the, the word means a person who intervenes on behalf of another. One who intervenes for someone else, intervenes on behalf of another. And we know that Jesus, by his work on the cross and through his resurrection, he became our eternal intercessor. His, he has the authority, the scripture tells us, to bring us before the throne. And so let's go to the end of the story here for a second to see who Jesus is right now today. Death, resurrected, ascended in heaven. And this is what the, the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. It says, because, but because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He's the kind of high priest we need because he's holy and he's blameless unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest place of honor in heaven. So Jesus, who we sang about this morning, who I'm going to talk about this morning, we're going to look at Scripture and read the story of Jesus' last days here on earth. We'll continue that story. This Jesus today is in heaven He's been given the highest seat of honor. He has all authority. And what is he doing? He's doing the same thing he did when he was here on earth. He is our intercessor. He's the one who is regularly, all the time, before the Father, pleading our cause. Understanding our cause because he became a man just like you and me, and the Scripture says that he understood even what it looked like to be tempted by sin, to know the trial and travails of this world, and yet without sin, he walked a sinless life so he could be the perfect, spotless intercessor for you and I. Anything and everything that's going on in your life, any and every question or concern that you have, Jesus has understood, has dwelt in understanding with you, experienced what you are experiencing, and yet without sin, and therefore with all hope. That's what we're going to celebrate next week, the hope that Christ offers through his resurrection, that he has defeated our sin, he has defeated death, and he has set us free. Christ, our intercessor. Jesus is the one who loves us as our intercessor. Jesus, after the Lord's Supper, interceded with his Father in heaven. So he... he, he uh, he shared a meal with his disciples. He washed their feet. He said, let's talk. And so he, he described to them the things that had happened, 
the things that were about to happen, and the things that would happen after he died, rose again, and went to heaven. He talked about the Holy Spirit dwelling with the disciples. He gave them a panoramic picture of everything that they were going to possess in relationship with him, both here on earth and forever. And at the very end of this discourse, and from John 13 to John 17 um, in the Bible, he finishes off by being a model intercessor for us with his words. See, we can be an intercessor with words, and we can be an intercessor with our life. And Jesus modeled both of those for us. But he starts off by letting them hear him pray to his Father what was truly in his heart as he was living among them, and what was truly in his heart as he was approaching the cross. Uh, read with me the excerpts out of John 17. I would encourage you to read the whole passage of Scripture. It's too long for us to go into today. But I'm going I'm to read quite a bit here in three different... Your Bible probably breaks it down into three different sections. How he prays for himself, how he prays for the immediate disciples he's talking to, and then how he prays for all of us as believers um, to come. He says this, After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him, he's talking about himself, authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life. If you're wanting to know how to have eternal life, it is to know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. Jesus is praying for Himself. Father, You know who I am. You know that I've been obedient. You know that I've shared with everybody that I've come in contact the glory of who You are. What was He describing? He was describing to God that He emptied Himself out of His heavenly form and He came to earth as a human and He walked on earth and revealed God's glory through healings, through teachings, through love, through forgiveness, through the grace of God. He demonstrated for us and for those He walked with who God was. And He was talking to a Father that He knew. And He was talking to a God that He knew heard His prayers. And he was talking to somebody that he knew that when, they heard, when the father heard his prayers, he was going to answer his prayers. This is an intercessor's faith. An intercessor, the one who stands in between, knows your need, knows where you're at, and he knows who he's talking to can meet that need. That's what gives him his faith and his power. He believes and trusts in the one who can answer his prayers. And as we translate this message into our own life, as God is calling us, which I believe He's calling every single person in this room to be an intercessor, He's saying the power and the sustenance of your intercession, both in word and life, is knowing the one you call out to is faithful and good and true to answer faithful, good, and true prayers. He wants to bless, redeem, set free His children. And so Jesus is sitting there, he's saying, Father, I've done it, now bring me back into your glory. Let's get back together again. And let's keep on doing what we've been doing for eternity. And then he takes his prayer to another step. He said, I want to pray some more things. He said, now I'm departing from the world. They're staying in this world, but I'm coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name. 
so they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that no one was lost except the one headed for destruction. He's talking about Judas there, as the scripture foretold. Verse 15, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe. Keep them safe from the evil one. Verse 17, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Verse 19, and I give myself. Here's this foreshadowing of his intercession work as giving of his life. I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. Can you feel in this intercessor's words his heart for his children? His, the ones he's walked with. God, you know that I've done all that you've asked me to do, Father. And now will you please protect my friends? Will you keep them safe? Will you give them the truth? Let them, don't, let them, don't let them believe lies. Would you preserve them? And Lord, I just want you to know I am committed to fulfilling this plan all the way to the cross so that they can be made holy. And he doesn't stop praying there. He moves on and he prays for you and I. Verse 20, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one. Just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Verse 23, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. Jesus has experienced, we've talked about this, but for those of you who are new to this conversation, Jesus has experienced from the beginning of all time perfect, unending, glorious fellowship in the Trinity. The God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been experiencing deep love for a long time. And then they created the world and they created you and I in the, their own image because they wanted to invite their creation into a fellowship that they had been experiencing. And then sin entered the world. Choice. Uh, a choice to choose between God and something else. The very foundation of what true um, sacrificial or self Giving love starts from a choice, not demanded, not expected, not a have-to love, but a love that says, I know I have choices and I choose you. That's the beauty of a marriage, right? You have all these choices, but you chose me. I chose you to be committed to you. And God says, I made everything for you. Do you choose me? And when we choose God in love, we have relationship with God. But when we choose not to receive God's love, to not receive all that is perfect and true and good, we sin. We turn. We rebel. We say, you know what, you're good, but thanks for creating me, but I got a better idea of what life should be about. If you fit in, maybe, but I got my own thing going. That's the nature of the heart of sin. But God didn't, didn't say, you know what, forget you. He could have. He could have started over. He could have brought complete 
final judgment at that moment, but he, it says in Scripture that God devised a plan from the very beginning. He devised a plan to bring banished men and women back to Himself. And that plan from the beginning of time was through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so when Jesus prays to the Father and He says, Father, I've done it, and or I'm going to complete it, this is going to happen, this is what He's talking about. Everything that we've experienced, that we've invited those that have been created in our image to experience, and that sin and death has, has, has marred and, and broken, and the very, the very passion and love of the Father to redeem and bring restoration back to that plan was centered on the cross through the life and work of Jesus. It all hinged on Him. He was the plan. There was no second plan. There was no out. A perfect, sinless sacrifice had to be killed, sacrificed for you and me, so that the righteous judgment of God could be taken upon him. And Jesus is saying, God, we've done it. We're about to do it. Protect my children. Protect my friends and all who come after. I want every one of them. And then what is he saying right there at the very end? I know how great this gig is up in heaven. I know how awesome it is to fellowship with one another. I know how awesome you are. And I want my children, my friends to experience it forever. I want them to share in the glory. He's inviting us. Is that awesome? Please do not frown at this. This is awesome. I mean, you can pensively think, but if you're looking like this, I want you to be like this inside, all right? I don't care what you look like on the outside, but on the inside, I want you to get it. This is unbelievable. But it came with a cost. Ah, we started late, and I'm going to try to end up short, so here we go. But this is the most important thing that we need to understand is because from that prayer, he went into the garden. It says this in Luke 22, they left, and... Then accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room where they were talking, and he went, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. And there he told them, pray that you will not give in to temptation. And he walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. And I'm going to stop here in the Luke account, and I'm going I'm I'm to splice in the Mark account here. Um, and I'm not sure I gave this to, to projection, so Joya, sorry about that. But listen to me. Mark 14, same account, different author says this, he took Peter, James, and John with him and became deeply troubled and distressed. And he told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch over me. That, those words, deeply distressed, deeply troubled and distressed in the Greek, deeply troubled is more like astonished. Like he saw something that was astonishing to him. And then to add to that distressed, in the Greek, would be more like to be overcome with horror. So he, he, he had been walking in fellowship with the Father. Whenever he prayed and talked with the Father, he felt extreme love and connection and fellowship like he had for eternity. Uh, there was good things going on with Jesus through his whole life in this intimacy with the Father. And then in the garden, the Father let him see what this was about to be about. And he was astonished. He's human. He was astonished and overcome with horror. 
And then back to the Luke account. He says, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Uh, from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. And then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him, and he prayed more fervently. And he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. We know he's by himself in the garden when this is happening. So the, the narrative that we are hearing is Jesus' self-proclamation of what happened. At some point, he tells the disciples what he prayed, what happened there. He wanted them to know, I saw the cup of God's What is the cup of God's wrath? What is the cup that Jesus saw? We have different descriptions of this in the Old Testament of God's judgment or wrath um, poured out on sin. Ezekiel 23 says it this way, in this account of God speaking of judgment. He says, you will drink from your sister's cup of terror, a cup that is large and deep. It is filled to the brim with Scorn and derision, drunkenness and anguish will fill you, for your cup is filled to the brim with distress and desolation. All Jesus' life, he had known intimacy, love, favor with the Trinity, but whatever, wherever he went, he was in God's love and faithfulness. But in the garden, the revelation of wrath was given to Jesus, and all he saw was separation. The abyss, nothingness, wrath, God, the source of light, love, hope, fellowship, was replaced with a picture of all that was not God. Hate, anger, uh, wicked anger, not righteous anger, darkness, aloneness, death. That's what he saw. And this experience, this separation what happened to him for the first time in all eternity. He recognized and realized that in order to go all the way to the cross, in order to fulfill the prayer that he had just prayed minutes before in front of his disciples, oh my gosh, I'm going to experience the wrath of God. And it over. We need to understand this. Because we need to understand that Jesus experienced and understood fully what it looked like for him to be an intercessor. Okay, we're going to pause there for a second because I want to talk about God's wrath for just a couple of minutes. Because I would imagine in this room, there might be quite a few, maybe very many of us who are like, I do not like the topic of God's wrath. I really love you talking about love all the time, Sean. It just makes me happy. But I do not like to think about God's wrath. But I would say that we cannot have the extravagant love of God without the wrath of God. Let me explain. <clears throat> as best I can. And I'm no 
philosopher, so work with me here. But if we want a loving God, we have to have an angry God. And let me ask you a question. Is it not true that when you really love somebody, and let's think about children, our children, or our spouse, or whoever is really close that you really love. If you really love someone, if someone is doing something evil to the one you love, what is the natural response that you have in your heart if you really love them? Anger. Justice. We have this surge in us. We're going to protect the one we love. The one that we cherish with all of our heart. Now follow this logic with me. If God the Father created something unbelievably beautiful in you and I, and multiply that by billions of beautiful creation, and then multiply that by the world that He created with high detail to serve and to supplement our creation and everything that He did, and then, then sin and rebellion and evil entered into that creation and was coming after the ones that He truly loves. What is the response of one who loves when His beautiful, cherished creation, you and I, is being attacked by evil. Wrath. The hard thing for us is to figure out what side of the line we're on. The hard part when we wrestle with wrath is that we think, I can't can't dwell with compassion and love in my heart and believe that God would be wrathful, but in order for the love of God to be expressed to its fullest extent, He's got to deal with evil. He's got to bring His judgment, and that is the cup of justice, of divine justice from God. We know from His Word that God loves all He's created. And we also know from His Word that He's angry towards all that is destroying His creation and all that He loves. If you don't believe in His wrath, you also don't understand how valuable you are. That He would fight for you. That He would create a plan that rescues you. That would defeat sin and evil once and for all, that He is a just God, a just Father who says, someone is picking on my child and I'm going to do something about it. If you don't believe in the wrath of God, you don't believe in your own value, and if there's not a wrathful God as as far as Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter is concerned, there's no need for Jesus. There's no need for Jesus to do His work at all if we don't have any need for sin to be dealt with. So you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say, oh, glory to God, thank you, Jesus, thank you for dying for me on the cross, if He's not dying for anything. What is He dying for? He's dying for me and my wicked rebellion. Yes, your pastor, apart from the grace of God, apart from his salvation, his work in my life, and his daily help of me is a sinful, rebellious, selfish jerk. Sometimes my wife might be able to agree with you. 
I need all the grace and love that God can afford me. But the only way that I can stand in his presence is not because I can be good enough. He doesn't put me on a training schedule and says, hey, for the next few years, let's really work at being good so that you can be good enough to be in my presence. He says, you can't do it. You're too far gone. But there is a way. There's a way through Jesus to take your place. You're valuable. Worth whatever it takes, including the suffering that Jesus looked at in the cup. We know that suffering is often occurs when there is a gap between what we desire and the realities of what it takes to make that desire happen, right? So if we want something, the, the harder or the, the bigger the task or the, the longer the waiting for that desire to happen, somewhere in there is some suffering, some trial. The larger the gap, the greater the trial. If the gap's too wide, what do we do? Sometimes we just change it. Okay, that's not going to work. I'm not going to hold out for that one. Let's change our plans. Sometimes we suppress our desires. Ah, oh, you know what? I really don't need that. I really don't want that. But not, neither one of those options is a derivative of love. Because if we love something, if our desires are for something, then we will do whatever it takes to express that love to that person. We know the phrase, better to love and have lost than to never have loved at all. In the garden, it appears that Jesus is taking the first approach because he says, God, change it. Can you? Do something different. It looks like he's saying, and I think he is, God, isn't there another plan? I'm looking at this. I don't think I like this. I know I said I'm in, a, in all the way, but <laughs> can, we, can we do another thing? There's an old hymn. It says he could have just stopped it, right? He could have called 10,000 angels, said it's over, it's finished. It looks like he's appealing to God to change it, but does he put his foot down? He doesn't. He ends that prayer by saying, but God, not my will, but your will be done. Take this cup, but not my will, your will be done. Take this cup, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, Tim Keller, a theologian, pastor in New York City, he says, as horrible as the cup is, Jesus knows that his immediate desire for his life to be spared must bow before his ultimate desire to spare us. He trusted in God's love and wisdom, and he truly intercedes for you and I. Father, I trust you. This is Jesus' prayer. Father, I trust you. No matter what I'm feeling right now, I go all the way with you. As, I, as the band comes up, I want to read this quote from somebody a long time ago. His name's Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is a great theologian, pastor. Some attribute his teaching and his work in his church in Northampton, Massachusetts, as the beginning of the first great awakening a great revival in the United States. He wrote this about the garden. He said, in the garden, Jesus had a 
near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. There are two things that render Christ's love at this point wonderful. That he should be willing to endure sufferings that were so great. And two, that he should be willing to endure them to make atonement for wickedness that was so great. But in order to its being properly said, Christ of His own act and choice endured sufferings that were so great, it was necessary that He should have an extraordinary sense how great these sufferings were to be before He endured them. This was given in His agony. He wrote in Scripture, He communicated that He saw the cup and he understood the chasm that he was about to experience, the rejection and pain he was about to endure because he wanted you to know, I would go that far for you. He wasn't just a great man that died a wonderful death for you and I. He understood that he stood at the precipice of hell and was not only about to endure it, but he knew that if he didn't go to the cross, we would endure it. Do you get it? This is the garden. This is love. That wrath had to be poured out so that sin and death could be destroyed, but that one, the living God Jesus, would take it upon himself for all of us. He wants you to know he saw the cup. He saw the cup. He was a human who saw the cup and he said, I am going to do it because I don't want Sean to have to go through it. I don't want to put your name in this phrase and say it even if you don't believe it. Jesus said, I would do it because put your name in. I don't want him to go through it. That's the love of God. stand with me. Let's pray. Jesus. We cannot, Paul says it in Ephesians 3, we cannot, it's, it's, it's too hard, it's too great to understand the fullness of your love. But we've seen a little bit of it this morning in the garden. You looked into the cup of wrath and you kept moving forward for us you pleaded father isn't there another way and resolved that if there wasn't you would go there for us Jesus I have no more words but you by your spirit have revelation that only you can give and Lord would you do that right now if there is anybody in this room who is walking away from you who has been created and fashioned by you, one who you know the number of hairs on their head, you know their dreams and their desires, you know their fears, you know their wickedness and shame, and you looked into the cup, and you, by your infinite wisdom and glory and grace, could call them out by name and say, I would do it for you. Lord, if there is one or many in this room that are at the place of revelation this morning that comes from you, Lord, I ask that you would give them the courage 
to bend their knee before you. No matter at what position of life they're in, whether they're poor or wealthy, whether they are educated or uneducated, it does not matter. You said at the end of time, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so I pray right now that if there's any in this room that are standing there at the precipice of hell in the cup, they would receive what you have done for them and us on the cross. Would you do that right now, Jesus? It doesn't come with great understanding. It comes with great faith. Lord, would you place faith into our hearts to believe? I pray that right now in Jesus' name. If that is you, if you receive that prayer, I want to talk to you after the service is over and just celebrate with you the step that you've made to accept the greatest gift that you could ever receive. Lord, for the rest of us, for those of us who have put faith in you, Lord, what are you wanting to do in our hearts right now? What are you saying, Lord? What what kind of work are you wanting to do? What depth of thanksgiving are you wanting to produce? Lord, what attachment to sin are you wanting us to, set, wanting to, us to set, be set free from so that we are not enamored with what you've already died for, to remove from us? Lord, what attachment to life and holiness are you wanting to give us this morning so that we can walk in the fullness of all you've created us to be? And Lord, what courage are you wanting to give us that we would be intercessors just like you are? this world. Can I share a story with you as we finish praying? Brendan just got back from our overseas missions conference, and we're going to respond here after this story, but I want to share this word. And there were stories being told about believers in other parts of the world, and there were five imams, leaders of Islamic community centers in this part of the world that had heard about Jesus, listened to the gospel, and allowed Jesus to save their life. They put their faith in Jesus. But when they put their faith in Jesus, as is customary in um, um, Islamic-controlled countries, they were, they, were, um, they were arrested as leaders of the community. They, they, they put their life on the line. They were arrested, and they were being tried for, for um, heresy. And if found convicted, they were going to be put to death. Right? So they are believers... They walk into the courtroom. They are being tried. Everybody around them is is hostile towards their faith in Christ. And they're walking in peace. In the middle of the trial, the court reporter starts manifesting a demon. As the court reporter manifests the demon, one of the believers calmly stands up, one of the imams, and goes over to the person manifesting a demon and delivers that person from the demon. Calls the demon out in the name of Jesus. The person is set free. The judge is so overwhelmed, he cancels the trial. He's so enamored by the power of God that's in the room. And then that five imams turns into 25 imams that give their life to Jesus. But why did that even happen? Because these five imams were so touched by the love of God and so arrested by the reality that Jesus really is who He says He is, that they were willing, they knew by converting that their lives would be in danger. But they did not love their lives unto death, as Revelation says, but they lived for the glory of God. And in this situation, God spared their life and brought salvation. There are many others throughout the world that are losing their lives. 
with the same love that Christ put in our hearts. Church, do we know that kind of love? We're a little bit over time, but we're going to stay just a couple of minutes. Thank you for your patience. But if you need prayer, if you are feeling God stir some kind of response in you, I just want to invite you to come forward, and I just want us by faith to say, God, we are desperate for your love, and we want to be your intercessors, whatever that looks like in this next season to come. If that is you, and if you responded to Christ this morning, would you come forward? I'd love to pray with you in these last couple of minutes.